0: I think the correlation between being in athletics and being in business or corporate America, you have to have the, the right values, the right mission that fits for yourself, and you have to have the right goals that all align. Uh, so if, you, if you're talking about sports and business, that is one thing that will be 100% in common, regardless if you're a pro athlete or if you're someone like Ryan at the top level, top executive level at a um, prestige organization.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think JD actually said it really well. I think that that's what uh, the the common tie is, is that, uh, you know, willingness to put in that, that extra work. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we see with lots of athletes, uh, top athletes are, are they're willing to put in that extra time? They're willing to put in that extra work. And I think you see that with um, high performing uh, people in the workplace. Now I can step back there and, and put a little bit of a downside on that too, I mean, a lot of top performing athletes, a lot of top performing executives do not have exactly the best family lives. In many cases, we learn that, you know, that, that in fact, they're, they're often putting their home life uh, second.
2: From Goose Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook, a podcast on psychology in the workplace. I'm Jason Blair. That was Jihad Abdurrahman, a former defensive lineman at Delaware State University who was drafted into the National Football League and who's now a client solutions consultant for Goose Creek Consulting. That was also Dr. Ryan Sherman, a world renowned psychologist and chief science officer at Hogan Assessment Systems where he's responsible for Hogan's groundbreaking data science and research into well-validated personality assessments for the workplace. Since leaving the NFL, J.D., which is what I call him, has worked in staffing, sales, business development, and run his own business. Before coming to Goose Creek, J.D. was a client success manager at Learning Tree International, a leading provider of training for the government and for private sector clients. Ryan is also a National Science Foundation grant recipient and a host of his own podcast with Blake Loop, The Science of Personality, which I highly recommend if you haven't listened to it. Today, at a time where more than 8 million students in the United States participate in high school athletics, 480,000 participate in college athletics, and thousands more participate in professional athletics. We're going to explore the psychology behind successful athletes and teams, what sports can teach us about leadership and teamwork, and why so many successful athletes struggle to make the transition into athletic leadership positions. Ryan, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, I remember reading somewhere that Dr. Bob Hogan, who founded Hogan Assessments, he had mentioned that he had started the company and he really views the founding of the company with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. I was wondering if you could explain to the audience a little bit about what his vision was and what's unique about Hogan Assessments.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me back on the podcast again, Jason. Always good to chat with you. Yeah, the the company really got its founding on on the basis of the Civil Rights Act, and it really was a a two-part thing here. So, uh, you know, Bob Hogan was doing all of this research in personality and was finding, wow, personality predicts all these really important outcomes, all these sorts of career outcomes. It predicts who's a high performer in this job, who's a high performer in that job. And He was basically doing a lot of contract research, a lot with law enforcement trying to help them find you know, the best police officers for for these roles and all of those kinds of things. And it was his, the, the second part was his, his wife, Joyce, who said, well, you know, you've got all these personality assessments, well what about adverse impact? What about racial differences? He said, oh, there's none. There's no, you know, no differences. And she went, Well, wait, wait a minute. You're telling me you can predict workplace performance and you don't have adverse impact. You don't have race differences. You don't have sex differences. You don't have age differences. He said, yes. And she said, uh you know, we could really help a lot of people and maybe actually make a little bit of money if we just did that full time. And that was really the inception of the business idea. And it was in some respects combating a culture of person uh, of rather uh, not personality, but rather cognitive ability testing, uh, which was probably the most common way for evaluating job candidates prior to to the emergence of personality assessments was was to use cognitive ability tests in the workplace to decide who to hire. And, you know, stemming from the Civil Rights Act, a lot of what was really going on there at a sort of secret level almost was an effort to exclude minority candidates, right? So, oh, we'll come up with a cognitive ability test and we'll say that that's related to job performance. But a lot of these cognitive ability tests, and and I want to be very clear, there are cognitive ability tests that aren't this way, but a lot of those cognitive ability tests at the time were really culture-specific tests, right, that were intended intentionally to exclude, for example, uh, uh, black job candidates from, from those jobs. And so what they were really doing was combating that, was saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to give you something else that is fair, that actually predicts job performance and isn't outright designed to exclude minority candidates. And, and that was really the inception of the business.
2: Oh, that's fascinating. That reminds me of the stories my grandfather, who grew up in South Carolina, used to tell me about at the polling places, they would have these tests. And he said, you know, it was tests about facts of, uh, you know, U.S. history or South Carolina history, but that it was completely designed to exclude – black people. And it's really interesting to me that in psychology and business, there's sort of a corollary there that probably, it sounds like lasted until the 1970s. That's, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's pretty wild. Yeah. The, um, it, one of the things that Dr. Hogan, um, and you know, I do some work with, uh, Hogan assessments, but one of the things that Dr. Hogan, um, once said to me was that one of the big moments for him in terms of realizing that there was something to leadership, was uh had to do with uh Vince Lombardi. Do you know that story, Ryan?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this was uh Vince Lombardi, who's the sort of legendary football coach of the Green Bay Packers and had a great deal of success with with several Packers teams. I think the first two Super Bowls ever were won by his teams and and uh, but essentially, he got tired of the politics in Green Bay in part because of the way Packers ownership works. It's really the t- season ticket holders own the team. And it, anyway, he got tired of dealing with the politics in Green Bay. So he quit while the uh, Washington football team uh, hired him to, uh, to to come be the, the the head coach there. And the team had apparently been uh, abysmal, had, had a horrible record, not making the playoffs in, in a long time. And so he said, "Okay, well, if there's anything to this leadership thing, if there's anything to coaching, if there's anything to who's in charge matters, then then we ought to see this football team turn around. And that's exactly what happened in the very first year that Lombardi was the coach. He took them to the playoffs. And for him, that was this sort of critical incident of, "Okay, there is something to leadership. There is something about coaching. There is something about who's in charge that really makes a difference in terms of team performance.
2: Oh, that's cool. And JD, I, speaking of, you know, leadership and personality, I remember uh, on your first day, uh, or it was your first week when you were in the office, I went by your desk, and I saw your head down in a book. And it was actually a, a book written by Dr. Hogan, Personality and the Fate of Leadership. I was curious, you know, given your role and the work that you do and your background, what was it that uh, caused you to gravitate toward that book?
0: Yeah, great question, Jason. So I think the the main aspect of it is that I was very so very or so so much interested in the book is because the fact that from sports, from sales, from everything I do, I talk to people, right? So I want to understand people. I want to understand how they react. I want to understand how to assess people, and realizing that words just don't provide, you know, specific specific details to someone, right? It could be body language, it could be, you know, it could be eye contact. It could be it could be different stuff. So that specific book, really understanding personalities that Hogan sponsored or Hogan really, really emphasized on uh, within the book, there there were some great key traits that I took away from it and that I was learning through the industry, specifically specifically in personalities and assessments, that I believe would help me. Uh, within my new role at Goose Creek. And it has because, you know, even from the voice aspect, right, you know, figuring out somebody or kind of assessing someone based on, you know, having a conversation, seeing if someone is actually excited within a specific field or not. Right. So I think it's just giving me the ability more to, to basically assess people and to not without actually physically having them take an assessment.
2: Right. That makes complete sense to me. I remember when I was younger and, uh, you know, I I played soccer and and even through like uh, the beginning of my career in leadership development, I thought it was all about skills. I thought that it was all about like being the hardest thrower or the person who could shoot the perfect basketball. But I think over time, what I've realized is you know, I think I, I first started to realize this when I was coaching, doing my mental health coaching work. A uh, a guy who sort of trained athletes came to me and he had this really exceptional softball player, but she had a lot of anxiety. And I began to see like so much of performance on the field is actually mental. And to help mentally, you really had to get an understanding of what someone's values were, what their personality was, and that actually would help increase performance. That was that was my general thought. I don't know what you guys think about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I in my opinion, right, I didn't start playing football until my junior year in college. I was a basketball player before then. But I think the main reason why I was so successful and so great on the field because I knew the person, not their skill set. Yeah, I watched a lot of film, but I actually did research on every lineman that I played against. So I would hit their weak points. Like I would know their sister's names. I would know things that that push their buttons. And if I remained cool and I threw them off mentally, then I would probably, I would probably win the matchup nine out of ten times in the game.
2: It's funny you say that because uh, when I was younger, I was a terrible catcher, horrible catcher in baseball. I mean, I could catch the ball, but I wasn't great at hitting. But what kept me on the field was I would I would get in the heads of whoever was batting I you know I, I knew details about them I could do a cold read <laughs> and I would just pick at them and pick at them and uh, my mom was like baffled she was like he's horrible at hitting why are you why are you keeping on the field And the coach was like, well, because he psychologically breaks down every <laughs> 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 on the other side so. Well, well, there's
1: a couple of things that I think are really important there that that I think um, you know that JD actually hit on without actually even mentioning it, which is the kinds of things that he was thinking about as an athlete, and uh, compared to the athlete that you were working with, Jason, is that, that that anxiety part comes up an awful lot in athletics. And what I've noticed in the athletes that I've worked with is, and some of the best athletes just are have this ability to just shake any of that off right? It just, they just know they're going to perform. I'll give you an example. A, a, a friend of mine, I won't mention, uh, I won't mention his name, but he's a professional baseball player, professional pitcher. And I remember after one particularly bad game, I mean, he pitched really bad and they hit the crap out of him. I mean, this was like, oh man, like, and it, and it was in a situation where you're kind of like, is this guy kind of going to stay in the majors even get sent back to the minors? It was kind of one of those dicey situations. And I was feeling real bad for him. And You know, I was trying to console him and and say he says his his first reaction was, Oh no, it's no big deal. I know exactly what I was doing wrong. Tomorrow it'll be awesome. It was just like, Oh my God. (laughs) Like most people would be sitting here going, Oh my god, my career's over, this is ruined. Like and he just had this unbelievable, like positive, non-anxious attitude about it. And the way JD described it about his game planning and things is just like you can just hear that there's just there's just no anxiety there. And that really top athletes have this ability to to, uh, to to just, I don't, I don't exactly know how. They, 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 they just have this ability to not worry about those things and to get over those kind of anxieties that other people don't. I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience, uh, I hit worse as a senior in high school than I did as a freshman in college and also as a junior in high school, mostly because I felt a lot more pressure as a senior in high school than I did in the other two situations. So Interesting. Uh, I, I can totally get it.
2: Yeah. Yep. Oh, it makes complete sense to me. And I mean, I think one of the things that stands out to me about athletics that's particularly helpful is, you know, often it's the first team that any of us are on. It's the first time we have to work together. Um, you're on a stage performing and it, you know, it's preparation for a lot of what people have to deal in the deal with in the world. You know, I had a friend come into town this week and he, um, He brought me this sweatshirt, and it's a sweatshirt that has a uh, picture of a Ukrainian soldier in the Air Jordan, if you've ever looked at the Air Jordan symbol for his Nike Air Jordans. And it's got a picture of that soldier, silhouette in that position, slam dunking a watermelon. And that is watermelons in in this region of Ukraine called Hershan are are sort of one of the main things they produce and it really struck me in looking at the t-shirt they're kind of using that as their symbol for victory there for retaking the city is that you know for so many of us athletics resonate so deeply i'm curious what do you what do you think causes uh ryan what do you think causes uh athletics to resonate with people so much
1: well, I think there there's several parts of it. One is that, you know, I mean, gosh, as we're re- recording this, the World Cup uh, just finished. I think one big part of it is that, it, is that there's that competition um, and, and we're, we're really seeing who's the best. Uh, there's the entertainment value, of course, as well. But I think for the individuals, and I know we're going to get into this as we go on to the episode, is the the team building aspect of it, the working together aspect of it. Um, the sort of testing yourself. I mean, we talked about Vince Lombardi earlier. He used to talk about you know really testing yourself, putting yourself to the metal to see you know how far can you go, how much can you do. Um, I think that's a big part of what fascinates us about it is that it really is people pushing themselves to the limit to see um, how successful they can be.
2: Yeah, that makes complete sense for you, JD. do the do you did you have that same fascination as you were going into? Athletics, what caused you to gravitate toward it? I mean, it's not, it's such a small percentage of people who make it into college um, athletics and even smaller than uh, the group of people who makes it into the NFL. What What caused you to gravitate toward it?
0: I think the aspect, I think the aspect of being a part, part of something, right? And then working towards a goal, like you're not living every day, at least growing up, right? Growing up, you know, you have school. You have you have sports, but besides school and progressing in school, like you have something outside that you're progressing for every day. Like our coach told me early on in high school when I was playing basketball, he said, "If you can get one percent better every day, every day, then you're going to be the you're going to be the best at what you do." So I think it was that, the aspect of being a part of a team, and then the fact that you know, you, growing up, you see all them all the, the the most successful people. From your neighborhood, or from, or that you see on TV, they're in the sports or they're an athlete, right? Uh, so being a part of that culture, growing up, and then the fact that you can be competitive and you can be the best at it, you can be number one, right? So that competitive aspect, and 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 there's a main reason why, it's probably a main reason why, like on the back end, why I end up getting into sales when I got out of pro football is because the competitive atmosphere, the environment, and the fact that I'm a part of a team and a company. So just, you know, just striving towards that goal. I think that was the main reason why I got into sports.
2: It's
1: fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Jason, if you don't mind, I'll probably I'll go up for it. Some loose speculation here. And I know some folks have talked about this in anthropology, literatures and things like that, but I think part of athletics is actually rooted in human history in terms of warfare uh, I mean, we know for, for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, that was the the way of survival was through warfare. Like warfare was the the way of life, yeah. and in some respects, a, uh, athletics sort of replaces warfare as a uh, you know a sort of more productive way of <laughs> of competing mm-hmm. uh, without uh, without the need for for mass murder. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> and, and so, I think
1: I think that that's actually one part of it, um, and. But I I think there are, as we'll talk about here, some other skills that come out of it as well.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I've always been fascinated by what makes, and, you know, JD, you were making the point about seeing other people and looking up to them um, and having a role model. And I think that's a a big piece of it for me in my head. And Ryan, you were also talking about, uh, you know, some of those same ideas, like being a big fan of Michael Jordan when you were growing up, you had mentioned that. To me once but you know i've always been fascinated by what causes athletes to tick and you know and and also the fact that we use so much from athletics in business or the workplace you know we're constantly talking about home runs or throwing touchdowns or the or you know being on the one yard line or my favorite line that i use is guys we're running a two minute hurry up offense that doesn't end after two minutes you know, it's so much a part of the metaphors we use and the language we use. I, I'm wondering, you know, from both of you, from a sort of social, social psychological perspective, you know, is there? And I think you made a great, great point there, Ryan, about it replacing warfare and sort of our natural drive to compete for resources. But are there are there things that core things that you guys can think of that we can learn? From athletics in business.
0: Well, I want—I want to. Before we dive into this, I want to refer back to Ryan with the um, with the warfare. I agree with you a hundred percent on that because everyone that I've came into contact with and myself, I've always wanted to dominate and compete. And me being an athlete, a main reason why I got into the athletic realm. It is. It it does. It does symbolize warfare because you want to be the alpha. You want to be the big dog. You want to be you want to be the dominant, the dominant, not to say person or race or whatnot, but just the dominating factor of all your peers. And sports allows you to dominate people and be better with be better than them without, you know, actually physically harming them. So that was a great point, Ryan. I just wanted to refer, refer back to that.
2: Well, actually, JD, I think it it kind of tackles some of what I think I was uh, getting at with the question, because ultimately, I remember going into a government client and talking about, you know, competition and leaders role in competition. He said, well, we don't compete. And I said, well, yeah, yeah you do. And he was like, no, we don't. I said, well, do you compete in Congress for resources from, you know, that could go to other agencies? Or, you know, do you compete for hearts and minds? Do you compete for an assortment of different things? And I do think a lot of life is really about uh, competition and competition for resources, whether it's an army at war or us trying to be successful in our companies. We're often competing for things. And I, I wonder whether sort of athletics when we're younger, at least prepares us for that competition, the competition that some of us don't even really recognize that we're in.
1: Well, th- there's no doubt about that. Uh, I, I think that that's part of why there's so many athletic metaphors or athlete metaphors. There's, I mean, there's even, you know, war metaphors in, in business as well. You know, it, it's funny thinking about the athlete metaphors. One of the metaphors I've been talking about recently is uh, it's referred to in the football world as, as Monday morning Uh, a quarterback or the uh, armchair quarterback, which is, you know, the person who's sitting there on their couch uh, or the person, the analyst who, after the fact, uh, says, oh, this is what they should have done. They should have done this. They should have done that. But, you know, weren't actually out there on the field, have no real experience being on the field doing those kinds of things, which I think is, uh, is a pretty interesting analogy right now when we look at the business world. So in the business world, there's a whole lot of that going on when people look at you know, what this leader should have done, what that leader should have done. And, and look, I, I don't want to bag too much on academic colleagues, but there's a whole heck of a lot of people who work in business schools who have no experience actually working in a business. They, they went and got their PhDs and they're very smart and they, they know a lot of things and and they know a lot about business, at least in principle. But there's a very diff, big difference, I think, in business in practice versus business in, in principle.
2: And it's really, that's, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's limited to academics. As somebody who's a former journalist, I remember when I was working at the New York Times, the best business reporters were people who had worked in business before, Mm. or had been economists, or had been, and you know, I could, you know, from the inside, looking at the work of those who had done that, you know, the person who did work in technology, or the person who had been, you know, particularly, I can think of striking moments during the Enron scandal when we were covering that, you know, our best people were the ones who had actually worked in that space before. And, you know, I think that there is some truth to that. You have to be careful about that Monday Monday morning quarterbacking, something you don't entirely understand. So I was going to ask you guys another, uh, both of you guys, another question I was, I was wondering, what do you think makes the difference or, or what factors make a difference between sort of like great athletes and good athletes and great teams and good teams and the ones that are just not successful in either category?
0: Well, I'm sure Ryan has a very scientific uh, answer, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm much more interested in
1: what you think. Um, You
0: know what's crazy? in my in my opinion competing at the the highest level and competing in college and then going on pro it's the fact that the most successful teams they can implement a scheme and be consistent at it and continue to be good and not map out or go away from it like Bill Belichick right he does the he does the same thing when the Patriots were, were, were coming to to scout me and take a look at me I spoke with a few of the assistant coaches they do, he does the same thing every morning in regards to meetings, in regards to his, his daily routine, everything. So I think the difference when you get to the high, the highest level, it is the Jimmy, the Jimmy, the Joes, sometimes the game, sometimes game plan. And when you have Jordan, sometimes it don't matter what you game plan. He's, he's going to figure out a way to make it happen. Right. But in order to be successful and be consistently good year in and year out, it's the teams that they don't, They don't do much different. They do the same thing. They find a way to be successful. They find their niche, and they just stay good at it. Like Golden State, right? Golden State, they're not going to beat you inside. They know they're not going to beat you inside, so they're going to beat you from outside and transition. They've been doing it for years. So, in my opinion, that's just the same thing with Saban at Alabama, same thing with Ohio State. Some people don't like Ohio State, but I love them. But, you know, (laughs) it's the same thing, consistency.
2: Well, and it's interesting that you make that point because one of the things, so I'm not naturally a planner, but one of the things that I've realized over time is that if you do a lot of planning, right, if I focus on whatever game plan I have, or if I'm giving a speech or if I'm facilitating a conference or I'm doing something like that, it never goes the way I plan it. But all the planning gives me a great foundation to know how to adapt in the moment. Because I'm able to sort of like shift. And, you know, there are all these athletes, Shady, like Warren Moon, Tim Tebow, come out of college and we think they're gonna be superstars. And then you have a Tom Brady who's like the backup quarterback, right? That no one ever thought was gonna was it Drew Bledsoe who was his, mm-hmm. his premier quarterback? Mm-hmm. It, it never thought they were gonna amount to to anything. I'm wondering if sort of some of what you're getting at in terms of both that consistency and adaptability is part of the reason, you know, the knowing the right moment yeah. to be consistent and knowing the right moment to adapt. Is that why your Tom Brady sort of jump ahead of your Tim Tebow's?
0: Yeah. You just, you see these guys now, I'm a throw it over to Ryan. I'm sorry. I talk a lot, but uh <laughs> you have, you see these guys uh, in the, in the NFL, right? They have one good year, Colin Kaepernick. You have one good year you know Tim Tebow but when they figure you out when they watch film all day and they figure out what you actually do RG3 you won't last long if you can't adapt like or or if you if your IQ is not not fully there with knowing the game like Tom Brady right Tom Brady Patrick Mahomes you can figure them out but they're going to adapt to something else because not to say their f- football IQ is higher than you know Tim Tebow or somebody else but they're, they're consistent in what they do and they don't get away from it. If Tim Tebow, if he has a bad game, if, if he throws off, he'll change his entire game plan because he's not conf- confident in a specific skill set. Tom Brady, he have a game, he might throw four interceptions. I'm not changing nothing. Next week, I'm going to do the same thing. So I'm throwing five touchdowns and we went about 30.
2: Well, you know, J.D., Hogan has done some pretty amazing research around what makes a team effective, team effectiveness. And w- one of those foundational things is obviously trust and then you know that concept of norms, right? Like, how are we going to operate together? How are we going to communicate together? And also, uh, do we have an aligned mission, right? You think about people like Jordan. You think of people like Brady. Like, they have a mission. It's championships. Everyone gets aligned around it and helps them become effective. But the and then results focus, right? They're focused on the results. But one aspect of that model that Ryan helped create is about adaptability. And being able to adapt. Ryan, is that something that you think is really important for athletes?
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I certainly do. And in fact, I, I thought uh, that's one of the things that stuck out about what JD was talking about there. Um, and uh, it, it's not only true for, for, I think, in that team's literature. And I, I'm, I'm sure I'm also not the only one who thinks it. In fact, I'm reminded of uh, a famous Billie Jean King uh, quote, and, and it's not really much of a quote, but she basically just said, winners adapt. And that's it. You know, and I think that's true in tennis. I think that's true in football. I mean, you've seen teams uh, go in at halftime and go, uh, okay, wow, that didn't work. We've got to do something different and come out and have a totally different second half. Didn't this just happen a week ago or so? Yeah. Our team was down 30-something points and came back to win the biggest comeback after halftime, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, I mean, so there's that. And, and, and to JD's point about these, um, it, this also happens in baseball. You see this in baseball. A brand new pitcher comes in, and it's just lights out, and nobody can hit him. Or a, a hitter just has an amazing season as a rookie, and nobody can figure out how to get him out. And then all of a sudden, somebody figures out how to get him out. And if they can't adapt, if they can't figure out, oh, wow, I have to make some changes. I can't just keep doing things the same way that worked for me before then that's it. Their, their careers are really short lived. And so I think that adaptability is a really important part of her own careers. It's really critical for team success as well.
2: Yeah. You're making me, you're, you're causing pain, Ryan. You're making me think of Chris Davis, the Orioles hitter, um, you know, Mm. who went from signing a, you know, I don't know, it was like north of a hundred million dollars contract. Yeah. Yeah. And went from being one of the best players in the league to absolutely one of the worst players and I remember them focusing on mechanics, um, focusing on mechanics. And there was one commentator who was a former player who said, it's not his mechanics. His mechanics have not changed. It's that everybody knows where he can hit now and where he can't hit. And they put the ball where he can't hit. Right. <laughs> so that's all, that's super interesting, guys. I, you know, I thinking about those uh, – The example of Tom Brady or somebody like Michael Jordan, you know, they were excellent situational leaders, right? Like, you know, Tom Brady can read a defense, he can call plays, you know, Jordan could get in the head of his opponents and get ahead of them. But I also sort of feel like, you know, they were transformational leaders, like they were really skilled at rallying teams around a common purpose or a common goal, and I think about that thing about mission alignment. Is there something to be said about that in sports as well?
1: Well, if you don't mind, if, if I jump in here, I'd, yeah, I think one of the key things that, that we've seen in, in our research on teams and mission alignment really actually has to do well, and, and partly is about results focus too, that you see with with leaders like Tom Brady and Michael Jordan, right? A lot of times you get to see them sort of in public and in interviews, and they seem relatively polite, friendly. Pretty sociable, you know. Michael Jordan on the golf course smoking a cigar seems like kind of a fun guy to be around. Tom Brady looks like probably kind of a fun guy to be around. But then you every now and then you get these clips of them on the sideline in somebody's face on their team, you know, hounding them. And, you know, the last dance chronicled, you know, just how almost unbearable at times Michael Jordan could be as a teammate. And mostly that was because it was about holding people accountable, about pushing people. For results, and and you see that with with Brady as well, and I think that's a part that gets downplayed a lot. We sort of see that as oh, you know, is um, uh, over controlling leadership or overly demanding or you know not people oriented, right? Not being people oriented enough. But I think the the key lesson there is it's not so much about um, about being people oriented. That's not the solution to leadership success, and and, and or being task oriented isn't the solution either. It's about Picking and choosing your spots, understanding when it's time to, to to get on somebody, when it's time to hold someone accountable for results and when it's time to put your arm around somebody and, and pull
0: them in. Yeah, those those are great points, Ryan. Uh, and I, I think you see uh, you see this a lot in college football with, with college head coaches. If they don't have a set mission or a set direction, then. You'll you'll see the outcome of the team. Uh, just for example, like Deion Sanders, he's just he's going he's at Colorado now, mm-hmm. but but he's his mission and where he wants to go is is laid out and straight. He took, I mean, he took Jackson State from a, a nobody to rank in the top twenty five in FCS in like a year and a half, and he you know he had a mission and a plan. And like you said, some some guys you have to or some people you have to hold more accountable than others, and every approach is different. So, yeah, you're 100 percent right. But I notice this a lot. You you notice it at the pro level because a lot of people get a lot of people in the pros, they get that money and they don't have that same drive. Right. But then you see, though, you see it a lot in college uh, because the head coach, at least college, college sports in general, because the head coach, you know, he has a lot of responsibility and not all, all your players on your team are pros. Right. So you have to approach right. everything different. So. Awesome. Yeah. And
2: it sort of gets to the idea of like, you have a coach, but there's also this other leader who's the team captain, the Jordans, the Bradys. And, and you know, we're used to talking about superstars, but I, I've always wondered, you know, what would the Patriots have been without Brady, which we may have gotten a glimpse. of <laughs> <laughs> What would Brady be without the Patriots? And what would Jordan be without the Bulls or the Bulls without Jordan? Do you
0: have any thoughts on that? Oh, Ryan, I want to hear it from your point of view. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, well,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, obviously, um, you know, Brady made up a lot of success for for, for the Patriots. Um, they were successful. They they were pretty successful before he became the the starting quarterback. Um, but then, you know, they got that ultimate level of success, the Super Bowls, uh, w- once he um, once he actually took over. Uh, and then, you know, as we've seen since he left, uh, you know, Tampa Bay's uh, had a lot of success. Um, and and that isn't to, to knock on, on Belichick or the Patriots or their system. I still think they've been pretty successful. But I, I think, uh, you know, there's this excellent book called The Captain Class that really talks about these really, truly exceptional teams, teams that have gone on just absolutely phenomenal runs. And it's just this analysis is by by a guy named Sam Walker, who I believe is the sports editor at the Wall Street Journal, which is not a place usually people think of when they when they think for sports. But uh, it's just this really excellent uh, detailed look at. I mean, it looked at all kinds of sports. It looked at rugby. Looked at women's volleyball. Uh, looked at uh, uh, soccer or football, however you want to call it, uh, and, and just said, well, what are these teams that just really excelled for some long period of time? And what he found was a common thread there was not the head coach of the team, which you might think that would be the answer, but it was actually the, the arrival and departure of some captain. I can give you a couple examples. One was the, the Yankees. Uh, when Yogi Berra became the catcher. Basically, the time he became the catcher to the time he retired, they were unbelievably successful. And basically, the moment he retired, there was a drop-off. The San Antonio Spurs with uh, Tim Duncan. Yep,
0: yep.
1: Uh, Right? They were pretty successful before Duncan arrived, but they came exceptionally successful after he was there. And as soon as he left, they were still pretty decent, but never quite that level of success. And so I think there is a pretty important role that that captain plays in driving look tom brady's how old 40 something right yeah if he shows up you know i don't know I, this is how i think jd may think of it differently if i'm 22 years old 23 years old out of college and i see the 40 year old showing up to practice an hour and a half before everybody else and they're working and then staying late i might be thinking shit man this is how we do it and especially with his record with his track record of yep. success yeah i mean that's the kind of thing that i think would motivate me as a player
0: yeah no you you're 100% right uh and i know Aaron Donald right i went to uh-huh. i went to visit uh or work out for the LA Chargers they were the San Diego Chargers uh we had like this camp and this guy came in at like 5:36 watch film left at nine or 10 at night and you coming in as a rookie and you like, who, like, this is why he's this guy. So like you said, the captain, especially in pro sports, it, it means a lot because you can lose a locker room. And once you lose that locker room, the head coach can't save it. Right.
2: right. So. That's an interesting point because we tend to think of the head coach as the leader of the team. And, you know, in taking those two ex- or the examples and the examples you guys were given, you know, you think about the Patriots, and I wonder whether the reason why they struggled was because they actually lost their leader and that the head coach really wasn't the leader, and why the Bulls certainly lost their leader when Jordan in the 1990s left for those two seasons where they didn't win a championship, but they were still good. But probably the difference was. There was another leader on the Bulls. They had Scottie Pippen. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I wonder whether that's also sort of thinking in as a in athletics or in the workplace, whether your succession planning is an important part of it.
0: Jason, all I can say is, did you see that Patriots game last week when they kept throwing the ball back lateral? They kept doing a the, the – I can't – I forgot the name of it, but backyard football. Uh-huh. Yeah. With the, Panthers, Ra- right. with the Ra- with the Raiders, right? That yeah. would have never happened if Tom Brady was there, because he, <laughs> he he would not play that. He, you know, he, you're you're 24-24. You're going to overtime. You're not losing, right? Belichick still there, still there, and, and that happened. So Ryan makes a, a a great point about that.
1: Well, you know, and I, I think the business relevance here, Jason, is is that. You know, it looks CEOs play an important role in companies. there's there's no doubt about that doubt, doubt about that. There's, there's studies that have been done showing that they contribute about maybe 14 to twenty, twenty five percent of of a, of, a C, of of a organization's revenue on an annual basis, right? Having the right CEO in place. But I think you can really lose an organization. This really speaks to what Jason was saying about losing the locker room. The way you lose your organization and the way your organization falls apart is not at that level. Like it can, right? You can have a dis- – and those make a lot of headlines, right? The disastrous CEO at Enron, that kind of situation, right? But most organizations don't go down that way. The way they go down is when the that those captains, right, those, those managers, those uh, first-line supervisors just go – you know what? This place kind of sucks, and I'm not going to be putting in any extra effort. And their employees see that, right? Their team see that. And they go, "Yeah, me too." And that's it, right? And and then it's lost, and and then and then the business just goes downhill from there.
0: Yeah, hundred percent right. Hundred percent. Yes.
2: Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, and I'll never forget this one moment. I think it was ni- 1996. I'm I'm an Orioles fan, so you can tell I'm a diehard fan of my team. Clearly, not fair weather. But I remember this one moment, you know, Adam Jones, who wasn't the best player on the team, he, he was really sort of the team leader. And the coach, the, it was a great moment. If it had been successful, I, I, I bet it, it would have worked. Game was tied. It was extra innings. The coach decided to bring in a starting pitcher to, uh, to deal with the top of the order of the team we were playing. And Adam Jones ran from the outfield to the bullpen and tried to get our star-closing pitcher, Zach Britton, to jump in. He literally said to him, put yourself in the game. Put yourself in the game. It didn't end up happening. But Britton got up and started walking <laughs> toward putting himself <sighs> in the game. And I bet we would have won if they had listened to listened to Jones, who was probably the real leader. But Ryan, that that point that you're making about you know, things that we can learn in business about leadership, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me in hiring on my end is I've, I've often hired athletes, younger athletes who have performed really, really well in the workplace. And so I'm curious, Shady, what is it? Do you think about athletics that prepares people, you know, even younger people, not necessarily leaders, but prepares them for the workplace?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I get that a lot. In my, in my opinion, I, I just think just the drive aspect, the aspect to be the best at what you do, and then you you're coming from a coaching environment, right? So you're people people supervisors managers the
2: thought that you're open to ideas.
0: Yeah, I mean they'll if if for example if Ryan or or yourself gave me a task, you know I'll, I I wouldn't question it because you know you're an expert. And I look at you as a coach, right? Just like I looked at my coach when I was playing football. I never questioned them, you know, I, because I because I, 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 in my opinion, I believe that they were always they always have my best interests at heart. So I think the ability to be coachable, the ability to to want to be the best at what you do and then have a and drive and goal. Right. They always told us. And, and I read this quote out of a book. Dreams without goals are dead. So we always had goals. So anything that we do in life. Uh, whether it's a job, whether it's family, whether it's sports, we have high goals. So, I mean, just to sum it up, in my opinion, I think athletes do so well in the workplace. And a lot of companies that I've, that I've interviewed and worked at, uh, they would rather hire an athlete than just a regular student uh, because I, th- I think it's the drive. I think it's the ability to be coachable. And most important, the ability to set higher goals than, you know, I want to say the average person.
2: Yeah. And I think as somebody who's a coach, J.D., I know you made the point about not necessarily uh, questioning. I think one of the most important things about being a coach, and I think there's a similarity between being a leadership coach, mental health coach, and an athletic coach. And in fact, like, you know, the leaders, the Google's coach, the guy who coached at Google uh, was a former uh, football coach. He really brought the team coaching model there. But one of the things about being a coach is it is – you know, it may ultimately be your decisions, but it's really coaching is about a conversation, right? You know, I give you direction. You ask me questions. I help you figure things out. You help me figure out that I'm wrong. And I think maybe there's something about it related to that that, uh, coachability idea that you're getting to um, this two-way street that may not exist in a normal, a, a true normal sort of normal hierarchical situation for young people. That desire to learn and that willingness to engage, and you know, that may be maybe super uh, super important. So, I, if athletes have so much to offer us in terms of leadership, why do you think so many uh, top athletes often struggle when they try to move to the next level, like college to NFL, or they become coaches, and you know, uh, they struggle? Coaching, and then some great coaches weren't superstars when they played. I can think of one example for me um, as I, when I was at Maryland in the early '90s. We had this quarterback who was amazing, Scott Milanovich. He broke all sorts of uh, records for passing completions, completion sen- percentage. His numbers were better than Boomer Esiason's were, but he also broke the record for interceptions. So I wasn't surprised when he went off uh, to the NFL and struggled in the NFL. But what's happened, you know, he he spent one year at the Tampa Bay at Buccaneers. I think he went to Germany to play and he may have gone to the Canadian Football League. But, you know, he started coaching and now he's the Indianapolis Colts quarterback coach and he's one of the best quarterback coaches. So I don't think there's always – I guess what I'm getting at, maybe there isn't, maybe one lesson – in that part is that, you know, there's not necessarily a really great correlation that it might be a bit of a myth that high potential is linked to high performance at one particular level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually had a high performing, performing uh, coach that coached me in college. Uh, he was my defensive line coach. Uh, he was all American at Alabama, multiple time, multiple pro bowler. But safe to say he, he wasn't the best coach I had. <laughs> He's, he wasn't the best coach I had. Um, the best coach I had didn't make it to the NFL, right? Played college, played at the Division III's college. But right now he has the most HBCU athletes in the NFL of all time, Right. Like I said, like I was saying earlier, he literally thought everyone he was a freakish athlete. And he was like one percent out of anybody when he was when he played for he played for uh Bear Bryant. Right. Oh, so uh he you had to be a great, great athlete to play on his defense. So he was he just couldn't coach anybody like he man, like just put it this way the coach that the reason I made it to the NFL was the coach prior to him. Because all the skills that I learned, I used my last year. So I didn't learn any new skills, which is why the Patriots didn't draft me, because Belichick asked me to my face. He said, what happened? What happened from this year to this year on film? And I ha- I didn't have an answer. I didn't get better. So So, in my opinion, the reason why great, great players, well, not all of them, but most great, great players cannot be great coaches because they think every player is supposed to be able to do stuff as easy as they were able to do it. Right. So, Ah. so my coach, I was a great player. So he was, it was, it was, i want to say great player. I was a pretty good player. So it was easy for him to coach me because if he was like Jihad, do a chop club, rip under, been to the quarterback, I could do it. But that guy that needed to be developed, if he told him that, he'd be like, I'm not as athletic as Jihad, so it's tougher for me to do that, so how can I get get to that point? But then you got those guys that, or guys or women that weren't as good in in college or in the NFL, so they over-prepare and they analyze everything because they knew they weren't the best player on the field, so they had to do other things in order to, you know, to get to that closest perfection as possible, which is why they're great coaches most of the time. Like, "Uh, I can't think of the guy that's, that's the NFL coach now, but, oh, like uh, Sean McVay, right? Uh-huh. he has been around the game. He knows the game. He I don't think he really played, but he knows the game and he overprepares. And, w- and when he prepares, he executes. He doesn't expect his talent to outbeat, to, to beat someone else's. He expects his game plan to beat someone else's. So, yeah, that's just my point of view.
2: And Ryan, I... I- I kind of think we do something like that in business, you know, in hiring, we often like make assumptions. We look for people who are like us. We look for people to work the same way that we do. We don't really recognize that there are lots of different paths and maybe there's an advantage to not necessarily being the best player on the field. um, Because, You know, the guy who has to work harder and that it doesn't come natural to him has to understand the game much better.
1: Yeah, well, I I think what JD said is, yeah, and what you're saying there is exactly right. I mean, the example that comes to mind for me is is, uh, Nolan Ryan. Um, He (laughs) uh, uh, he, he seems to still not understand why pitchers can't throw, you know, uh, 100 plus pitches a game. Uh, like he used to do, right? He was like, well, you know, so many complete games and just pitch, 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 always pitching, never coming out. Um, And it's just like, well, doesn't make for the best coach because the things, as JD said, the things that he could do, other people just can't do that. And um, I I think that's also true true in in Michael Jordan's case. I don't think he would be a particularly good coach (laughs) because even if you try to tell somebody what to do, many people can't actually execute or do those things uh, the way that you can do them, and, and I think the other thing that happens is that that the really some really exceptional athletes can't even explain to you what they're doing or why they're doing it. They just you yeah. know make decisions, and, and and I think what what makes really good coaches is ones who can explain to you this is why we're doing the thing. Whether they can do it or not is a different thing. I think that's also true, by the way, in in uh, for for mu- musicians, right? Some musicians can just play music and they can't really tell you why this is the right note here, but they just know that it is. And other people can teach it to you and can say like, okay, this is why these are the right ones. And, and they're, and they're just very different.
0: Yeah. those was
2: great. Point. Yeah. I yeah, I think those are all, are, are all really great points because when I think often in a um, business environment, like one of the things that I have to be very conscious of and I think leaders that I work with have to be very conscious of is you don't want to try and get someone to play the, let's say, the guitar the way that you play it. You want them to ch- kind of play it in the best way for them that's going to get the end result of the music. So if that means like arching your hands at a slightly different degree or whatever it is, if you're open to the idea that there are many different paths for people to be successful and you're looking at the actual the actual whole person in front of you, instead of this model that you use you're gonna have an opportunity to um, to be more effective and I, I think about that a lot in working with uh, people coming up from generation Y and also Millennials and people complaining about you know the way that they want to work and you know and in generational differences even but I, I kind of think that the answer to some extent is is not to worry about, the generation or the way that you did it versus the way that they did it. But to actually look at the person in front of you and not try to help them find your path, help them find their path, the right path for them to be most effective. Does that kind of fit with what you guys are getting at? Yeah, it totally does for me. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys too was, you know, I'm curious because, you know, Hogan and even our company are very focused on things like personality, competencies, um, values, Uh, and competencies are really just behaviors that clusters of behaviors that people have. But we're very focused on personality. We're very focused on values. And I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, Ryan, and then also yours, Shady, what do you think? Are there ideal personality characteristics derailers or even values for athletes?
1: Well, I think that's a pretty interesting question. Um, so, I mean, so we've got quite a bit of athletic data here over the last several years at Hogan from, from a variety of, 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 um, of sports. Um, and we're still collecting more right now, but one of the things that, that has actually stood out to us and, and, you know, some people come to us and they'll say things like, well, oh, okay, well we need a, a, you know, a personality profile for an offensive lineman, a personality profile for a quarterback and a personality profile. I don't think that is going to be very fruitful. I just don't think there's, Oh, this is the personality profile for this position or that position. Yeah. But one of the things that has stood out in what I've looked at is there is a sort of top level athlete personality profile. There is a personality profile that sort of fits with NFL athletes, the way that they think, the the kinds of values that they have. And one of the things that we've seen in the data that we have so far is that there's only a handful in every draft class, but there's a handful of athletes who, who just don't match that, who just don't like they don't look like the rest of the group from a personality profile perspective. And what we've seen is that those athletes tend to not make the roster. Right. So if you look at, you know, between draft day, and between when the roster actually gets set uh, later on, several months later, those people are actually substantially less likely to make it. So I think there is some component of fitting in with the culture that's really important.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, I've done some you know, leadership coaching in the NFL with NFL executives. And you know, one of the really interesting things for me, very similar to other work I do, I, I first look at what their context is. And, you know, I want to know what are their organizational challenges? What are the challenges in their role? And then I want to look at their personality and their values through the lens of that, that context. Um, but very often I find there are very similar things coming up in the, um, in the values. And Brian, is there any research data on which values might be more important than others? Well, it, it doesn't
1: seem like it's necessarily consistent across all sports, but in, in the data that we looked at, and I actually didn't pull it up for our, <laughs> for our conversation today, I do remember a few that stood out, particularly in the NFL data that we have, was they tend to score very high on tradition, which I think makes a lot of sense. You see, also see this in the military. It's about you know chain of command, uh, who's in charge, knowing uh, what rules to follow, what's my assignment, doing my assignment. You know, sticking to the, to the game plan, that's really a big part of what it means to be high tradition. And uh, that that's what we see with a, with a lot of uh, of the NFL players. And we see the players who sort of buck that trend, who sort of say, oh, I like to try things my own way. I like to, you know, deviate from the norm. Uh, I like to challenge the authority and say, no, nah, I don't think so. I think we should do it this way. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to go over very well. Yeah,
0: yeah. They typically have yeah. the most problems. Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah no you're absolutely right
2: you know it's really interesting that you pulled that one out in the concept context of uh this conversation with jd guess who has the highest tradition score on our entire staff (laughs) is that right (laughs) he does (laughs) that makes good sense you know and i and i think there's something to be said for said for the idea of uh that role clarity is important and you know, being principled is probably very important and less of a focus maybe on autonomy, you know, which is is a value, you know, progress and autonomy are very much a value, but they can kind of get in the way of sort of a team operating in, operating in unison. Are there any sort of common derailers, Ryan, that you know of that get in the way? And JD, are there any common derailers that you can see get in the way of uh, the success of athletes?
0: Uh, I think, I think their environment, some athletes are great in more stable environments. When you get to the higher levels, then the environment is not as stable, right? You got more money. You have more people around you. Uh, you have more leeches around you to say, uh, when you're in college, you can be protected, right? I remember when I was in West Virginia, I had a friend that played at West Virginia. They had entire security guards around them in case anything happened, right? In Morgantown. Uh, So if anything, like it's an incident that happened with Pac-Man that nobody never know about because, you know, the security system handled it. But uh, Pac-Man Jones. But I mean, when you get to the NFL, you have you don't have a coach checking on you on a consistent basis. Uh, So the environment can change, change the way someone thinks. That's why you see people like, you know, Antonio Brown come from a, a small school, you know, pretty relaxed, pretty calm. His environment changed. He just you know, he just changed to a different person. So I think the environment is the main thing that whether it's positive or or negative, right? You could you come from a school where you're a troublemaker, like Tariq Hill, and then you go into the right coach under Andy Reid and you you change your entire attitude from a you have a bad reputation to a, a pretty good reputation right now. It's his environment. So I think it could work both ways.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point, JD, because in our data, some of the ones the some of the derailers that really stood out as as being associated with being one of these top level NFL athletes. And, and this is pretty impressive because this is a large sample, but we saw that the average uh, NFL draftee scored a, at the 84th percentile on reserved, which is really about keeping, you know, keeping distance, uh, probably in, in some respects, avoiding. Those kinds of situations that, that you're talking about, I think that that seems to be, you know, a characteristic that really matters, but also at the same time, and they scored at the 84th percentile on, on bold, which is about having confidence. And I think, you know, to be, to be a top athlete at that level, you have to have a lot of belief in yourself. I'll also point out that these folks were in their early twenties and, and we do know that, uh, you know, I assume you like me were probably more confident in your early twenties <laughs> than you, know, as you got older, but, um, but they also score very high on diligent and dutiful, uh, which is it's just really about that rule-following part, about that attention to detail, about focusing, about practice, about effort, about, about really just trying to maximize performance um, and be part of the team. And I think all of that's really – to me, when I saw that, I thought, wow, this really makes sense for high-level athletes to, to be like this, to avoid distractions, right, to be hyper-focused on what they're doing. And, and to believe in, in their ability to, su- to succeed.
0: I think I think you're 100, like I said, you're 130% if you can go 100%, especially with the the confidence and belief. It's so many individuals that that came in the league that I knew and they, and they weren't well known in college, but they just had the mindset like you said, they believed in themselves and they were confident and they, so to say they speak stuff into existence and it it really it really changed their careers. Uh the, the one guy I'm thinking about, John Morant from that plays with basketball' uh-huh. basketball. He's small school, but you cannot tell this guy anything right.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the interesting thing on that and gosh you go back to what we talked about earlier was Tom Brady. I think there's this famous story where he met Robert Kraft. And, uh, like shortly after he got drafted. Right. So, I mean, he was this, you know, maybe third string quarterback, even at the time. And, and he said, Oh, you know, I want to thank you so much for drafting me, taking a chance on me. I want you to let, I want you to let you, I want to let you know that this is the best decision this organization's ever
0: made. I heard that story. I I think about that. I I think about that. Like, I mean, and,
1: and I think part of that is you run the risk of bordering on arrogance, right? And so you, so you always have to watch out for that that potential, right, is overconfidence and arrogance. But at the same time, what you want is somebody who really believes in themselves, right, who really believes that they can achieve, that they can put in the work, they're willing to do it to get there. You know, not someone who, who's sort of entitled, right? Um, yeah. and, and so there's that trade-off there. But I, but I think, nonetheless, what we see is we certainly see a plenty of of, um, of these athletes who, who really do have that belief in themselves.
2: Yeah, and it's one of the interesting things about derailers, personality derailers, things that are roadblocks that get in the way of your success, that they're actually really strengths. That get overused. So you want that quarterback who's willing to throw that throw that nobody thinks he's going to land, but not throw the interception. And, right. and, and I think that in managing those derailers, it's about getting into that sweet spot between the interception and the throw to Gronkowski that nobody thought anyone could take. And I, I also thought your point, Ryan, about um, being reserved makes such sense to me. At first, I was thinking about it, why Because someone being more reserved, you know, they might be independent and objective, but a little bit more introverted. But, you know, if you look on the other side of it, people who are really low in reserve struggle with boundaries and struggle with staying steady in the storm. So that combination of sort of confidence and being able to stay steady in the storm seem like great qualities for athletes and great qualities for leaders in general. Uh Absolutely. So, what advice would you guys have for uh, you know people who want to be coaches, people who want to be athletes, or general managers? You know what what advice would you have for them in terms of um, you know their development or their uh, the things that they can do to sort of drive success?
0: Man, that's a loaded question. I'm gonna let Ryan get there. <laughs>
2: Someone once said that I ask questions like a Barack Obama press conference, that there are five questions built into every one. (laughs) (laughs) I can go back and tackle that one again. I'm just curious, like what advice would you give either athletes or coaches about being
0: successful and having successful teams? Uh, I just, I mean, the NFL in specific, or I take that back, any, any pro sports in specific, I think networking is huge for getting for coaching to getting in the business, even if you're a past player, because you see so many players or so many coaches to get opportunities. They not necessarily based so much off of their, you know, their past performance or who they or or what they've done in the past in a sport. But, you know, building those relationships, networking, uh, really loving the game and just, you know, showing up to events where you can get in front of the right people. To get in coaching positions, for example, my my little brother he's a he's an equipment manager for the Philadelphia Eagles, right? He didn't have the best credentials, but my father knew one of the assistant coaches. Networking got into the organization, and now he's moving up, pushing towards to be a uh, one day to be a, a general manager. So, I mean, I think I think that's huge because it's, it's people that come in coaching every every year. They don't exactly they don't have to be the best player or the best athlete. Uh, but just, I think networking and connections is huge uh, with coaching.
1: Well, and I would re- reiterate what JD said about, uh, you know, really having a passion for what you're doing. I think that's true in all businesses. Uh, you know, if you don't really, if you're not really passionate about what you're doing for the, for the, if you're only in it to make money, right. Or if you're only in it to try to be famous or, you, you know, you, you're just not going to be successful. And I think the most, the reason most people get into coaching isn't to be famous. It isn't to make a bunch of money. It's because they, they want to contribute some knowledge that they have. They want to, to help some, uh, in many cases, young athletes, particularly, I mean, look like most of the coaches aren't NFL coaches. Most coaches coach, uh, you know, pop Warner and they coach, uh, uh, you know, youth football and youth baseball and And I think most of those coaches really feel like they want to contribute to the community. They want to contribute to future of, of what people in their communities are going to be in terms of leaders, uh, what, what the people in their community are going to be in terms of teammates. And and I think that's one of the things that they really develop as part of sports. And so that, that's to me is the primary thing. If you want to be a coach like that to me should be your goal, that that's the thing you're most passionate about. And, um, and, and then, then, then look into coaching.
2: Yeah, I remember um, hearing this story, sort of flipping the flipping the script and thinking about what uh, leaders and employees in other industries can learn from athletes. I remember the story about Andre Agassi, the tennis player. And, you know, he went from playing very well uh, to I think he dropped from like the first to 140th in terms of. His ranking, it was like within a year or some some short period, and um, his coach said something to him like, uh, "You know, you got a choice. You can do one of two things: you can either decide to quit, quit, or or uh, start over." And he decided that starting over was the right choice and taking the lessons from his failure. And I've always wondered about athletics; like, you can't always win, and that was one of the great lessons. No matter how good you are, you can't always win. And one of the things I've found in business is that you actually fail. Failure is what leads you to success. And I also sort of feel like in athletics, teamwork is something that we learn a lot about the transitions. But a point that both of you guys have kind of gotten at is having difficult conversations is really a part of it. And you have to, you know, when you're constantly getting graded on the field or the court, you have to have difficult conversations that sometimes we avoid um, in the boardroom or the C-suite or on the front lines of work. And you guys have really been talking about leadership as opposed to management. And those are all takeaways that I'm sort of pulling. But if you were to sort of like flip the script and think about what is it that people in the workplace can learn from athletes and athletics, what what would those things be?
1: Well, I would point to some of the things that JD mentioned earlier, right? In, in terms of, of setting goals, planning, um, you know, preparation, drive, motivation, that competitiveness, uh, the, the teamwork skills, leadership skills. These are all things that you learn in athletics, and you don't really learn those anywhere else. I mean, there are a few other places you can you can learn in sort of non-athletic places to learn about teamwork, but it, but leadership and, and teamwork are really essential parts of many athletic endeavors and, and you learn a lot about that. One of the other things that I feel like always impressed me uh, about athletes, particularly student athletes, was their ability to manage time, which is really, really important. When you're looking for you know, for potential employees, you're looking for people who could manage their, their work and their home life. They can balance both of those things uh, at the same time. And that's what student athletes spend a lot of their time doing. They've got classes, they've got social lives and they've got athletics and they have to balance that in a way to make everything work and, and to be successful in all of those. And, and I think that's a real skill that, 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 uh, that people can learn from it from athletes.
0: Yeah. JD. No, I think, I think Ryan hit it right on, right on the head. I mean, just the ability to, to get up every day and, and have a purpose. Right. And, Translate that purpose to the workplace, well, whether that's goal setting, working, working with the team, and you learn all this. Like you said, you learn all this in in sports. Leadership abilities, abilities to to operate under stress and not be stressed. I know Jason always says, like you know, you seem to you seem to be calm all the time or seem to be laid back, but yeah, I mean, operate under under stressful situations and not be stressed. And and most importantly, having the ability to to not only set goals for yourself and for the company you're working with, but to bring that to bring that competitive energy and fire and engagement every day to the workplace. Every day, I mean, that's right. We we look at coming into work as practice, practice, but when you get that big opportunity, it's game time, right? Especially in sales, uh, you reach out to clients, you're prospecting. You're, you're practicing, even though it is a game, but you're practicing. But then when you get in front of that client, it's game time. It's time to, it's time to deliver. So I think having that attitude every day in sports translates translates great to the, to the actual workplace. So, J.D., you know, that line you just said
2: about how I talk about how calm you are to your face. Yeah. I'll tell you what I say behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> I say J.D. hits the sweet spot between resilience and willingness to still take feedback. Because for a lot of people who are really resilient, the downside is, you know, things bounce off of you. So you don't necessarily absorb some of the feedback. And I feel like you have that right amount of resilience to go forward, but that same willingness to take feedback. And I think that's both super important, both in business and in sports. I appreciate it. And one of the, just in sort of like uh, wrapping and closing, because I really, 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 really enjoyed this conversation, um, if nothing else, exploring like uh, the fascinating parts about athletics and a lot of their connections. I was wondering if you guys, in terms of just thinking about um, more broadly, the idea of what we can learn about the way that, you know, personality and values play a role in both Athletics and work. Are there any sort of key takeaways you might want to offer for our listeners? And I'll let I'll let you go first, Ryan. I mean, JD, and then I'll let you go first or next,
0: Ryan. I just think with with both with both avenues, you have to have your values and your missions and your goals just have to line up. Whether you want to be a top athlete or you want to be a top, you know, corporate manager, uh, I think the cor- correlation between being in athletics and being in business or corporate america you have to have the the right values the right mission that fits for yourself and you have to have the right goals that all align uh, so if you if you're talking about sports and business that is one thing that will be 100% in common regardless if you're a pro athlete or if you're someone like Ryan at the top level top executive level at a at a prestige organization.
2: Ryan, any thoughts on that on your end?
1: Yeah, well, I think JD actually said it really well. I think that that's what uh, the, the common tie is, is that um, you know, willingness to put in that that extra work. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we see with lots of athletes, uh, top athletes. Are, are they willing to put in that extra time? They're willing to put in that extra work. And I think you see that with um, high performing, uh, people in the workplace. Now I can step back there and, and put a little bit of a downside on that too. I mean, a lot of top performing athletes, a lot of top performing executives do not have exactly the best family lives. In yeah, many cases, yeah. we learned that, you know, that then in fact, they're, they're often putting their home life uh, second. And so there are some trade-offs. I think if you really say, Hey, I want to be the top, person at this, top person in athletics or the top person in it. I'm not saying that there are no examples of people who are, who are both, but frequently, uh, you know, we have a limited amount of time. And, and so you really have to decide where do you want to dedicate your time? Where do you want to dedicate your effort? How important is it to you to, to be the absolute best or the very best at this, uh, at whatever activity it may be, whether it's in business or, or in sports? And I think people have to make those decisions, uh, but but I think uh, but but the, the commonality really is that drive, uh, uh, drive for performance, drive for success.
2: It's well, very interesting. One of the I, I once worked with a senior executive, C-suite executive, a woman who, you know, well known and you know very high up in technology, and she would often get called to women's conferences and events where you know, people would ask her questions in the audience. How do you have it all? How do you have the work-life balance? And how do you have, um, you know, this high-powered career? And she she said, uh, I don't have it all. You have to make a choice. Right. <laughs> you, you have to yeah. decide yeah. what you want to be. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with having, you know, it being balanced out. But I always thought that was super fascinating
0: and a super fascinating lesson for me. I- so, I, yep. thought, I thought it was amazing that the same exact exact thing Ryan just said, Jason said said to me in my debrief. Really? About, about, yeah, about distributing time. Oh, uh-huh. uh, about where where uh, you know you want to you have all these high performance goals, but where are you spending your time? How do you want to spend your time? And is there really balance? Right. So the same exact thing Ryan just said. Jason said the same exact thing in my debrief. It was a real, <laughs> the same exact thing. Like, what do you want to trade off? Like, it was because I said I said I would rather. I said I would rather have. I value time more than money, and then you went to the exact same spill that Ryan. Mm-hmm. Right? So well, and
2: cool. it's a, it's an interesting thing, uh, JD, and part of the reason why every new employee takes a personality and values assessment here is you know uh, I want. I want to. Our managers want to understand what your values are and help you align them with your goals and your um, your role here. So, and and again, that was your Hogan assessment debrief, right?
0: Yep. Hogan, yep. Hogan assessment. Yep. yep.
2: Yeah, and I think you know it's a powerful tool that helps align the different players on the team with the ultimate team goal. You know, I might be motivated to help a little lady across the street because you know, I think it's socially appropriate behavior. You might be motivated to do it because you're an altruist. But if the team goal is just to help the little old lady across the street, it doesn't matter. We just need to line up our values so we can do it. Well, guys, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you both for being here. Thanks so much.
1: Uh, I don't mean I don't mean to cut you off, but man, I want to say thanks so much again for having me on here. This is always great chatting with you. Always great to be part of the podcast, and and really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, thank you, and same to you, JD. It's great to have you on. I'm sure you'll be back again. <laughs> um, I really appreciate uh, I appreciate both of uh, both of all of what you shared, and I hope that it has a uh, positive benefit on um, on people. So. Thanks for joining us on this great interview with Ryan Sherman and Jihad Abdurrahman. We're looking forward to being with you all again on the next episode. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.